It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. By the time Irene Triplett was born, her father, Mose Triplett, had already lived a full life. He was almost 83 when she was born in 1930 and had fought for both the Confederacy and the Union. Irene's mother, his second wife, was nearly 50 years his junior, perhaps seduced by his secure veteran's pension. She kept receiving it after he died, when Irene was eight. And because Irene also had disabilities, she could keep getting it too. She received a Civil War pension of $73.13 a month until her death in 2020, almost 160 years after the war broke out. In many ways, the Civil War pensions were America's first great entitlement program. Since then, trillions of dollars in federal funds have been given out to support Americans in their old age or with disabilities. But now, that money is running low. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how secure is Social Security? While Washington debates raising the debt ceiling, there's a slow-burn funding problem that's going to be harder to solve and probably more consequential. The trust fund that pays for much of Medicare, the health insurance scheme for the elderly, will run out of money by 2031. The fund that pays old-age benefits for Social Security, the state pension scheme, will be exhausted by 2033. Politicians need to agree a fix in good time, but it's not clear that they will. What would happen if these funds reach insolvency? And how could that be avoided? With me this week to talk about the short-term tricky problem of raising the debt ceiling and also about the longer-term really hard problem of preventing the pots of money that pay for Social Security and Medicare from running out of money are Idris Kaloon coming to us this week from Kentucky and Charlotte Howard in New York. Idris, what is going on in the bluegrass state? Um, my little brother is cramming for his AP statistics test, which is like an A-level. So it's a walk down memory lane for me. Are you helping him out with that a little bit, or are you just leaving him to get on with it? Uh, a little bit. I, I remember one or two things about confidence intervals, so happy to share. Uh, nice. Well, your stats knowledge is going to come in handy in this a particular episode. And Charlotte, how are you doing? What's going on in Manhattan? Idris's mention of AP tests is giving me strange flashbacks to my high school days and the horrors of spring when you were just constantly studying for exams. Is studying for exams one of your recurring nightmares, Idris? Is this something that plagues you. Mine is that I haven't signed up for my classes in college or university. Yeah. Thankfully not AP focused. Yeah. I have this dream that I signed up for a class that I forgot about 
never show up and then I'm told that I'm failing yes. and not going to graduate. Yeah, that happens. Yes, yeah. that's mine too. Yeah. I have that dream all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good to know. It never goes away. <laughs> Actually feels kind of fitting given that we're talking about the repetitive waking nightmare that is Congress's debt ceiling negotiation. What do you make of it from London, John? Well, I've covered a lot of these rounds of brinkmanship over the debt ceiling over the past 10 years or so. And so I'm a little bit blasé about it as a result, I must confess. That said, if you play a game of chicken often enough, even if there's only a 5% chance of getting run over, you repeat that again and again and again and again, and eventually you get run over. So there's that too. You know, initially, people thought that there would be some time to get this together. But uh, just this week, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, said that the expected X date when America would finally properly breach the debt ceiling would arrive as soon as June 1st. The White House and the Republican opposition haven't really been engaging in substantive talks. And that has added a lot of pressure to these discussions. And... One of the people I wanted to speak to about these subjects was Ben Ritz, who works at the Progressive Policy Institute, which is a think tank in D.C. He thinks a lot about this stuff, the debt ceiling, the fiscal health of entitlements. And I spoke to him earlier this week to ask whether or not there was a serious effort to tie the debt ceiling negotiations to a rethink of entitlement programs and entitlement spending. I think there's been a, a purposeful delinking on the Republican side because the way Democrats have, have portrayed it, and I think accurately so, is that Republicans are holding the debt limit hostage to to their demands for policy concessions. And if they don't raise the debt limit, that's going to force a default on our debt, and that's going to have great financial implications. And the idea of cut Social Security or we're going to default on the national debt and torpedo global financial markets is not great politics for the Republicans. They know it's not great politics. And so there has been this purposeful delinking of any sense of entitlement reform from the debt limit debate. And then I would say there's also been a broader distancing of the Republican Party from entitlement reform because of Donald Trump. It, it used to be that Republicans would be willing to talk about benefit side reforms, but Donald Trump famously ran on not touching Social Security and Medicare, and then Republicans traditionally don't want tax increases. So they've ruled out basically every solution, and that's put them in, in this bind of not really being able to offer any solutions, whether or not you're talking about the debt limit debate, but even in the context of the debt limit debate, uh, it's especially toxic for them. Yeah. We're very far from the party of Paul Ryan. Yes, extremely. So just give us a, a lay of the land. Where is Social Security and Medicare in terms of their ability to stay solvent at the current levels of benefits that uh, they've promised? So right now, both Social Security and Medicare are projected to be insolvent within the coming decade. Now, what does that mean? Both programs have dedicated revenue sources that are supposed to fully finance benefits. And in years when the programs collect more in revenue than they spend in benefits, it's allowed to be credited to a, a trust fund. And then in years where it runs a deficit, it can then draw on those surpluses to make up the difference between benefits and revenues. And so in the past, both programs were running pretty decent surpluses. But as demographics have changed and we have fewer workers paying the benefits per each retiree, we now have more in spending than we do in payroll tax and, and premium revenue being raised. And if that gap isn't closed, 
there's going to be uh, a time in the next decade when they run out of trust fund surpluses and benefits will be limited to what can be covered by incoming revenue. And so that's going to result in deep across the board benefit cuts. Yeah. So this is something that I think people hear. They hear that Social Security is going to become insolvent. And I think they in, think about you know the program imploding and, and not existing anymore. But that isn't what's going to happen, right? If Even if this trust fund is drawn down. Yeah. If the trust fund is drawn down, benefits are still able to be paid uh, based on incoming revenue. So for Social Security, what that means is benefits would be cut across the board by somewhere between 20 and 25%. It's not going to just disappear. Right. And that's based on the current trajectory. In the decade between now and then, what could change that would make this program uh, solvent? There'd have to be a big policy change. Um, Social Security and Medicare are, are their, their costs and their, their income streams are heavily dependent on the demographic composition of the U.S. and the, the shape of our economy. And these are programs that they don't just turn on a dime. It's not possible for us to just grow our way out of the problem or they're going to become insolvent, absent, concerted changes by policymakers to reduce benefits, increase revenues, or some combination of the two. But the appetite for that is fairly minimal at the moment, right? I think that might be an overstatement. Yeah. I think right now it's it's almost non-existent. In the past, we saw some appetite from both sides to engage on policies to make the program solvent, whether that was, you know, tax increases on the Democratic side or benefit reforms on the Republican side, or some some proposals had combinations of the two. But now we have, for the first time in recent memory, the leading presidential candidates of both parties basically pledging to do nothing. That is, you know, really, you know, with less than 10 years to go, really hurtling these programs towards insolvency. And President Biden put out a, a budget that uh, tried to address some of this. It tried to address Medicare, but it really punted on Social Security, right? Yeah, I mean, tried, I think, is generous. The president doesn't want to touch benefits. He's made that very clear, and he made it clear in his State of the Union address. But he's also ruled out significant tax increases. Um, He said he's not going to raise taxes on anybody making under $400,000 a year. And it is virtually impossible to close the Social Security solvency gap just with tax increases on people making over $400,000 a year. Idris, before we go on to talk about the funding crisis for Social Security and Medicare, let's just pause on the debt ceiling. What happens if an agreement isn't reached in time? So America actually hit its uh, debt limit back in January. And what happens then is the Treasury Department does something called extraordinary measures where they do a few accounting gimmicks to buy themselves time for Congress to figure out a way to raise the debt limit. And at some point, those extraordinary measures, which include things like not making contributions to certain pension funds and other things, eventually they run out. And that's a day that's called the X date, which sounds cataclysmic and I think would be. If America goes over that cliff, the country would no longer be solvent. It wouldn't be able to pay its debts. There would be a self-made default in a way. And we don't really know what lies on the other side of that. It's a bit like the upside down in Stranger Things. And I think what's interesting this time around is that so little 
of the conversation is about the drivers of federal spending. A lot of that has been not just entitlement spending, which we're talking about now, but it's also been the fact that presidents of both parties have spent very freely, not only Biden, but also Trump, uh, Bush, Reagan. Everyone has spent quite a lot of money, and there isn't really much attention to how to address that. Yeah, I think this is a classic example of a problem that is a big deal in the short term, because if the country defaults, it really matters. And then a bigger deal in the long term, as Idris says, because they're these big drivers of America's deficit that no one is particularly interested in tackling. But you have an enormous amount of political theater that is very high stakes. I mean, you have some ideas that are not totally crazy, like paying bondholders first who own treasury debt and delaying other payments. But Yellen has ruled that out. And then there are other ideas that are truly bananas. And the most ridiculous, the biggest banana is this minting a $1 trillion platinum coin and putting it at the Federal Reserve. I mean, it's just bonkers. Idris, before we go on to the entitlement stuff, can you talk a little bit about what the link is between this annual debt ceiling fight and the big entitlement programs running low on money? Yeah. So there is actually a bipartisan consensus now that entitlements are frankly untouchable, despite the fact that they are more than half of federal spending. If you want to actually address the root causes of why America is spending as much as it is, that's one place you would look at. At the same time, Republicans are very keen to keep defense spending at the same level as it is. At that point, you basically only have left to play with discretionary spending, which is all the rest of the stuff the federal government spends money on. So by taking entitlements off the table, you have in some way limited the ability for any of the kind of grand bargain idea that, that might America might might well need, um, especially if it's going to get back on a path of spending less when it's not an emergency like COVID or a war. But I don't think that the present uh, political incentives are aligned in such a way that that will happen. Charlotte, the thing that struck me reading Idris's recent piece and then doing some research before the podcast was that though we're talking about dates for Social Security and Medicare running out of money or running low on money towards the end of this decade or early in the next decade. That might sound like a long way away, but it's really not. I mean, a solution has to be found to this really pretty quickly if politicians in Congress want to avoid their constituents having, you know, overnight pretty drastic cuts to their benefits, right? Yeah. I think that it's a classic problem, though, where they may not be the incumbent in 2031, which is when Medicare is scheduled to run out of money, or in 2033 when Social Security's trust fund is scheduled to run out of money. So this is a problem that is both urgent and requires dealing with now, but also far enough away that it's not in any politician's direct interest to propose a really hard-hitting reform. And when we talk about running out of money, what we're talking about is the trust funds. So when they run out, you'd have to really cut the programs 11% for Medicare, maybe as much as 23% for Social Security. So that's where this becomes really concerning for Americans and taxpayers and then for the politicians who oversee this big problem. But the issue is that for now, politicians don't need to worry about 2031 or 2033. They're thinking about 2024. And we'll get into this a bit later. There are a few fixes here, though probably the best fix is to combine them in some way. One is to cut entitlement spending. The other is to raise taxes. Or the third is to change America's dependency ratio, right? The ratio of 
working age Americans to retired Americans. And the best way to do that would be through immigration, increased immigration to America. It's worth noting in passing that a lot of other countries are wrestling with this problem too. And the protests that you're seeing in France against Emmanuel Macron's pension reforms, where you know he's taken a huge hit to his popularity are over a different version of this, right? Trying to fix the solvency of public pensions there by increasing the retirement age. And you know, you can see the reaction that that's had. Okay, we'll go back to another time entitlements were in need of reform in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you'd take out a subscription to The Economist if you don't already have one. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. Idris, Charlotte, what have you particularly enjoyed from our recent coverage? I am excited to read our coverage of the upcoming Turkish election, which we have declared already to be the most important election to be held in 2023. I, on a less serious note, would like to recommend a column that we have that is titled What to Make of King Charles's Coronation Quiche and gives an explainer on the various British dishes to celebrate the monarchy, which is bizarre. This piece also includes the controversial sentence, London is the most delicious and diverse food city on earth. I take issue with that. Yeah, I think some hometown pride by the author there. Okay, economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. The first American entitlement programs were limited, compensating veterans of the Revolutionary War and Civil War. Wider social insurance wouldn't come until 1935, when Franklin Roosevelt signed the Social Security Act as part of the New Deal. Over the next decades, increasing numbers of Americans became eligible. Say, I wonder if I could check on Jim. That's my husband. His application. He made his application in Hawaii just after the Korean War. But now that I think of it, I can't remember his number anyway. Well, that wouldn't matter too much. In the next section we visit, the information is kept by name in alphabetical order. So if your husband were here, I could find his social security card quickly with his name and date of birth. But I can't show you that card, Mrs. Carroll. All information here is confidential. I can show it only to your husband. The government expanded its remit to health care when, in 1965, Lyndon Johnson signed legislation creating Medicare and Medicaid. The bureaucracy at the Social Security Administration had grown over its three decades and planned for those programs to be sturdy and solvent, even in the face of a nuclear attack. This is the nerve center for paying cash benefits to America's growing family of 23 million Social Security beneficiaries and for administrating the Medicare program, covering more than 19 million people. To protect its employees, as well as its functions in the event of a nuclear attack, the Social Security Administration has undertaken a comprehensive civil defense program. Civil defense preparedness is the standard procedure at the headquarters of the Social Security Administration. Our 30,000 shelter spaces make this one of the largest shelters in the country. By the 1970s, an aging population meant the real threat to entitlement programs was not nuclear, but demographic. As the ratio of retired to working people increased, the amount of Social Security benefits paid out exceeded the taxes paid in. But reform of Social Security would mean either increased taxes or benefit cuts. It became known as the third rail of American politics, lethal for members of Congress to touch. 
As The Economist reported at the time, politicians have no more dared to touch Social Security's rickety finances than to criticise their mother-in-law's hairdo. On the one hand stand the elderly, who become cantankerous at any suggestion of tampering with their benefits. On the other are the 108 million working people who now pay Social Security taxes and resist the idea of any increase, but feel entitled to a long retirement with a bountiful pension. In 1981, Ronald Reagan touched the third rail and set up a bipartisan National Commission on Social Security Reform, headed by Alan Greenspan. But progress stalled, and two years later, on January 14, 1983, Reagan attempted to reassure Americans that their payments were safe. My aim in all of this has been to treat with this problem honestly and not return to the political furor that was created when we tried to bring this subject up more than a year ago and when it was chosen or some chose to make it a political football for political results and frightened the life out of a great many senior citizens with the thought that this upon which they're so dependent was going to be taken away from them. No one that I know in this government has any intention of taking away the checks that these people are getting. I've said it over and over again, but somehow it does not get as much attention as the lies that have been told by those who want to portray us as somehow out to destroy Social Security. The following night, Reagan's chief negotiator, James Baker, brokered a compromise with members of the commission. Reagan signed the Social Security Amendment Act into law the same year. This was the last serious reform to the program. Just a few months ago, there was legitimate alarm that Social Security would soon run out of money. On both sides of the political aisle, there were dark suspicions that opponents from the other party were more interested in playing politics than in solving the problem. But in the 11th hour, a distinguished bipartisan commission appointed by House Speaker O'Neill, by Senate Majority Leader Baker, and by me, began to find a solution that could be enacted into law. None of us here today would pretend that this bill is perfect. Each of us had to compromise one way or another. But the essence of bipartisanship is to give up a little in order to get a lot. And my fellow Americans, I think we've gotten a very great deal. The result, Greenspan admitted in his autobiography, involved pain for everyone. Employers had to absorb increases in payroll tax. Employees faced higher taxes and a longer working life retirees' cost-of-living increases were postponed, and the wealthier ones had their benefits taxed. But Reagan and the Commission thought that they'd succeeded in funding Social Security for the next 75 years. Unfortunately, only 40 years later, the same issues loom again. Idris, by the 80s already, there's this mismatch between the obligations of Social Security and Medicare, you know, the demands made on those programs by retirees and the funds available to them. And so we get the Greenspan Commission, which, you know, does a really hard thing, which America's political system has been trying to, or at various points has tried to repeat since and has failed to. Why do you think the Greenspan Commission was able to do it, but it's been impossible since? I, I think that the balance of incentives between short-term and long-term have become even more skewed today. There is so much to be gained from demagoguing the other side as coming for 
entitlements and coming for your Social Security and your Medicare, which you earned. You see that with Biden at a State of the Union where he baits Republicans into saying, yes, we won't touch Social Security. He knows that that's third rail for them and he dares them to to try to touch it. And and they say, no, 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 we're not going to. And then you see on the Republican side, you see Donald Trump is sending memo after memo uh, hitting Ron DeSantis for when he was a Tea Party member of Congress supporting ideas of entitlement reform. He's wielding that as a cudgel and it's going to be fairly effective. One of the moments of political genius of Donald Trump was in the primary to actually diverge from, at that point, the Republican orthodoxy, which accepted that there needed to be some change in Social Security. He, he basically said, no, there shouldn't be, and we need to promise everyone that there won't be. And that's obviously very politically popular. The problem is, at some point, the, the popular position is going to run headlong into reality, and someone is going to have to bear the cost of actually seeing a, a feasible fix through. The problem, when it does finally come to getting fixed, you know, in four years' time, five years' time, maybe 10 years' time, will just be harder to do as well. Charlotte, the last time that Congress got close to touching these issues was towards the end of Barack Obama's first term, right? Yes and no. I mean, in that it stretched for a really long time. It started during Obama's first term. You had Republicans who at that point were led by John Boehner in the House insisting on what they called the Boehner rule, which was that the increase in the debt ceiling should be matched by spending reductions over the next 10 years. And you had real brinkmanship. People may recall there were various nouns that were used to describe phases of this. There was there was sequestration. There was the fiscal cliff, right? You had Ted Cruz grandstanding about repealing or delaying the Affordable Care Act. It was this continuous, slow-moving nightmare. Boehner resigned in 2015 in part because of this. Picking this kind of fight is risky for all those involved, but it is a pretty effective way to make a president look bad and also potentially to hamstring him in his second term should he win it. It was really years, right, of fights over the debt ceiling that then plagued Obama through his second term, and that could be what happens if, big if, if Biden were to be reelected. The Greenspan Commission managed to enact policy that went into effect. There was an attempt during the Obama administration in a committee called the Simpson-Bowles Committee that was supposed to set up this path for fiscal solvency that suggested, among other things, raising the Social Security retirement age, cutting defense spending, and other things. And that that one went nowhere uh, pretty quickly and also was never seen as, as quite as viable as the Greenspan Committee was. So that just very neatly encapsulates the differences between the politics of then and now. Yes, and it's maybe easy to forget quite what a dominant issue this was in American politics about 10 years ago. I mean, when I turned up in Washington in 2013, there was a very thick copy of the Simpson-Bowles Commission report sitting on my desk, which had been highlighted and underlined in various places by Greg Ipp, who I shared an office with for a while. And this was the discussion of the time. And there was this sense of real urgency around uh, deficit reduction and that if something wasn't done right now, America would be in a very bad place. And then that debate just sort of went away, partly because of changes in the Republican Party, which I think we'll get onto in a little bit. But also, I think what's happened with the Democratic Party is that the conclusion from those years of brinkmanship was that there was very little benefit to being the party that came up with compromises that was prepared to cut spending a bit and raise taxes if you're negotiating with a party that only seems to be interested in making 
the Democratic president in the White House look bad. And so actually what we've had in the interim is sort of both parties have wandered off into pretty unrealistic political positions. And the Greenspan's commission-style compromise that I think we probably all agree would ideally be repeated seems further away than ever. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to hear from a senior Democrat in the Senate about what his party's position on all of this is. I forgot until this very moment that I wrote a briefing with Greg Ipp on how to reform entitlements in America in 2013 that was structured as a letter to Barack Obama, which is ridiculous. Amazingly, Barack Obama did not listen to me. I was shocked. Well, he did, right? I mean, he was up for entitlement reform. I loved working on it with Greg. He's great. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Idris, you've been hanging out on Capitol Hill, as you do, and talking to some members of the Senate about entitlement reform. Who are we going to hear from now? So we're going to hear from Sheldon Whitehouse, who's the chair of the Senate Budget Committee. He's a Democrat from the state of Rhode Island. And when we spoke a few weeks back, when the debt ceiling issues were starting to become severe, we sat down to talk about the prospect of funding entitlements for the future. And we began by asking why it was that Republicans this time were insisting on spending cuts in return for increasing the debt limit. It was always separable when Trump was president. This is an artificial uh, hazard that they've created. Mm -hmm. The problem here for the Republicans is that they are the tools of a creepy billionaire donor elite that wants to change America in ways that America hates. And in order to accomplish the purpose of their creepy billionaire donors, they've got to hide from the American public what their goals are because it'll all blow up in their face. And that's why their strategy is what it is, which is to try to go into a secret room with Biden and a hand grenade and get him to agree to stuff that nobody wants. And that to me is just unbelievably bad uh, governance, among other things, intensely disrespectful of the Constitution and the process that we have established for how you move legislation through the uh, Article I chambers publicly so that everybody has a chance to have their say. This is like some despotic, weird, you know, third world thing where you get into the back room with the top officials and agree to something that completely screws the public. No, that's not the way America's set up. Yeah. It's interesting to me, though, that they, they don't want to touch Social Security and Medicare. Huh. Until they get in the back room. So that's what you think? The, totally. Yeah. If you look at the CBO estimates on um, the trust funds and how Medicare Part A might run out in 2028, Social Security 2035, what's the Democratic plan for addressing those, obviously that would well. The obvious one is raise contributions. The president has already done that for 
Medicare. Mm-hmm. It's quite easy to do for Social Security, I think, to, you know, try solving Medicare and then come back and do Social Security is a perfectly logical choice by the Biden administration. And the method is more or less the same. We stop at whatever it is, $160,000 now. So we're like, okay, let's assume you were going to honor the Biden pledge. You could go from 160 up, but let's assume we honor the Biden pledge. So you go from 400 up, and then let's say you find ways to calculate carried interest and other forms of non-wage income. I think you can put a lot of additional revenue into that program in a way that is totally fair. I mean, if it's good enough for taxpayers making under 160000 why do billionaires get a free ride? So I think both from a revenue point of view and from a simple fairness point of view, it's a pretty easy win. And then if you go back to Medicare, I constantly talk about the multi-trillion dollar savings compared to original estimates that we're seeing, which I suspect comes from the Obamacare reforms. Um, we have accountable care organizations in Rhode Island that have saved a lot of money that are writing big checks back to Medicare out of shared savings, mm-hmm. whose patients love, 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 love what they have done because they're not getting benefits taken away. What they're getting is better care, more appropriate to their lives that keeps them healthier. So there's more to explore there as well. And I think if you do those things, you get to be on a pretty solid footing. But the Republicans have always hated these programs. So they want to find ways to weaken them. It's not a bug. It's the feature of going after Medicare to try to cut benefits and weaken the program. Do you worry about the cost of interest payments on the debt coming up? Quite a lot. Yeah, absolutely. What's the absolutely plans to do with those? I am really not in a position to speak for all Democrats on that, and it gets into incredibly complex issues. One of the things that has helped us a lot is being the reserve currency. So protecting our status as the reserve currency is pretty vitally important. And as you know, I have pushed for a reform in the budget committee that I have not given up on that would at least make the arithmetic add up. So when you look at things like tax spending that are not currently in the mix, then your analysis becomes a lot more relevant to reality. Idris, can you outline what the Democratic Party's position is on entitlements now and the significance of Joe Biden's pledge not to raise taxes on those earning less than $400,000 a year, which to my mind was a slightly crazy pledge to make, but nevertheless one he made. Yeah, I I think if you make more than $400,000 a year, you're in the top 2% of American households. So I I wouldn't necessarily classify it as middle class, but uh, nonetheless, that is the pledge the president has made. You know, the Democratic position is fairly clear. On the debt ceiling, they say there should be a straightforward increase uh, without any conditions attached. Most sensible people agree with that as well. Uh, this isn't really the, the right leverage point to be using. And on entitlements and fiscal rectitude, I think that they uh, they are punting a bit. The president's budget, in which he lays out his solution for all of these uh, problems, has some ideas for how to uh, fund Medicare more, but really 
doesn't touch the the five trillion dollar gap between projected payouts and expected receipts for social security within the, within the next decade what we saw from senator whitehouse is his suggestion that you could increase payroll taxes uh which in social security right now they don't charge payroll taxes beyond i think the first hundred and sixty thousand dollars of income so you could lift that and charge people who make more than that uh for social security and that that would get you a lot of the way there the problem is that if you add in that sub $400,000 provision, you actually lose out on a lot of revenue that you would collect. So uh, you would need to find other ways of raising revenues, other ways of raising taxes. But what Democrats don't want to do is contemplate some amount of benefit cuts publicly, because that's just unpopular. And so what we see from the Biden administration is not really very much engagement with that issue. And, you know, it makes sense given the political incentives that have been set out for them. And Idris, is there a way that Democrats could hold to Biden's pledge and raise taxes on those earning less than $400,000. I mean, what if they did it through just payroll taxes? Do you think they could then say, or Joe Biden could then say, oh, I didn't raise income tax, or my party didn't propose raising raising income tax? I mean, in reality, right, with a split Congress, it's really hard to see that that happening. But is that a potential way out of the box that Democrats seem to have put themselves in on this? Yeah, you can try various semantic games to wriggle out of that pledge, but it is a fairly binding pledge particularly i mean democrats have always hewed to this idea that they can raise all the revenue they need from the top one percent of the income distribution which you can get a lot out of them but for the kinds of sweeping industrial policy that biden wants to do the kinds of sweeping reforms and expansions of the welfare state that he wanted to do you there just simply isn't that much money uh in the top one percent to do all those things the way that europe funds their their welfare system is through a much flatter uh, uh, means, you know, things like the value added tax collect more revenue from lots of people. America's system is at the federal level fairly progressive, but it doesn't collect all that much. And Charlotte, what about where the Republicans have got to on this? I don't know quite where they are at all now, right? Because they have a head of the party or nominal head of the party, Donald Trump, who doesn't seem to favor any, any cuts at all to Medicare or Social Security. But nevertheless, there is still a kind of libertarian tendency within the Republican Party, within the congressional GOP, at least. That leaves me kind of confused as to where the party is on this now. I think your confusion points to a lack of coherence within the party. Paul Ryan was someone who took this problem seriously. And whether you agreed with his proposals or not, he had made this part of his brand almost that he was this geeky guy who cared about the deficit and wanted to present real solutions. You're right that Donald Trump doesn't seem at all interested, which makes a lot of sense in in trying to reform these programs because doing so is politically risky in the short term. And the, the other thing that I'd point out is that if you want to be serious about entitlement reform, it involves all kinds of changes. It's not a simple fix that's easy to explain to voters. So a rational response would be to reduce benefits for those with high incomes for Medicare, uh, a marginal increase in the retirement age, some increase in taxes. I think something that's really important to appreciate is that we think about these as public programs, but the private sector has a huge role in Medicare. Medicare Advantage, which is privately managed Medicare plans, has grown enormously over the past 15 years. In 2007, it accounted for about 19% of the eligible Medicare population, and it was almost half last year, so more than doubling over this time period. So there is a lot that one could do within Medicare Advantage to think about promoting competition and bringing costs down 
there has been some change within the main program of Medicare itself to give the government more power over negotiation to have more uh, power to bring drug prices down, which is something that was anathema, particularly to the Republican Party not long ago. You remember Sarah Palin talking about death panels and, and bureaucrats being in charge of what treatments would or would, wouldn't be covered. There's now a bit more appetite for government intervention there. So I've just listed a bunch of different things that wonks and onlookers like us get concerned about, but that I haven't seen seized by either political party in recent years, and I'm not really surprised. Idris, Charlotte started out on the solutions there, grabbing the third rail. Let's imagine that President Biden appoints a Howard Kaloon commission to come up with a solution to this. Uh, are you also signing up to the same sort of mixture of spending cuts and revenue raises, perhaps with also some rises in the age at which people become eligible for benefits like Social Security and Medicare? Or have you got another way of doing this? Well, I don't want to jeopardize my 2040 presidential campaign. So uh, you can have all the benefits you want, and there's always going to be money to pay for it, I think would be my... It's not clear that that's a joke. It's not clear that that's a joke. Uh, But anyway. It is 100% a joke. (laughs) Let the opposition research start now. No, I think, yeah, the Social Security, the math is very uncomplicated. You have benefits and then you have uh, receipts and the two need to match at some point. And if they don't, you have problems. So there are various ways you can you can tangle with it. You can adjust the inflation deflator. You can phase in raises of the retirement age over time so that current beneficiaries aren't harmed. And you can increase payroll taxes a bit. I mean, you know, but there are only a few levers, unlike health insurance, which is a lot more complicated that you have to pull. But eventually, the two do need to be harmonized. And you can't just promise people that benefits will stay as generous and and tax revenues will stay as low as they are. That's just not going to work out in the long run. Okay, guys, before I let you go, it's quiz time. We heard Ronald Reagan earlier talking to the press and the American people about the 1983 Social Security Act. On November 10th, 1984, The Economist reported on Reagan's triumphant re-election in an article called The Singer, More Than the Song. I've got a couple of questions for you about the 1984 election. How many states did Reagan win in 84? Um, I have no idea, but let's say I'll go with 30. I think he won a lot. I'm going to say 42. Wow, 42. That's a lot. In 1984, Ronald Reagan won 49 states. Wow. Yeah, Walter Mondale won the District of Columbia and his home state of Minnesota. And that was it. So it was the most one-sided election, I think, in American history. Or at least recent history. Uh, yeah. Nixon also, the election he cheated in, he won by a huge amount. Yeah. Nixon did do extremely well in that election. And that question is coming up, Idris. So hold that thought. <laughs> okay. When Reagan won in that landslide in 1984, The Economist pointed out that only three previous presidents had beaten Reagan's 59% of the popular vote. Can you name them? Hmm. FDR? It sounds like Nixon is one. <laughs> You've got two out of three. Um, How far back are we going? Uh, these are all 20th century. Okay. Johnson. Johnson won by a lot, right? Maybe. You've got all three of them. So Roosevelt well in 36, Lyndon Johnson in 64, and Nixon in 72 all got 60% or more of the popular vote. It's incredible. 
The Economist closed its report on the 1984 election result with a tribute to Mondale, which was rather sweet and seems fitting for our theme today. We wrote, he fought at the end a courageous and honest campaign for his most passionate beliefs that government should care for the weakest members of society, that adversaries should be negotiated with, not confronted. In this election, when the predictable came about, Mr. Mondale survived an unrespectable defeat with respectable grace. That's it for this week. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Julia Johnson, Benji Guy, Harriet Noble and Stevie Hertz. Nico Rovast is our sound engineer. If you like the podcast, then please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can now find every episode of Checks and Balance in one place at economist.com slash checkspod. You can also get in touch with us via email. The address for that is podcasts at economist.com. We really enjoy reading your emails and we enjoy them even more when you attach a picture of where you're listening. So please keep those coming. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. Checks and Balance. 